This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Another BNE Intelli News podcast. I'm Ben Harris, the editor in chief of BNE Intelli News, and uh, I'm very pleased today to welcome Nicholas Veron, who is a senior economist and founding member of the uh, How do we pronounce this, Nicholas? Is Bru Bruel Brugel? Oh, you, we insist on the spelling. <laughs> so Brugel. It's a European think tank uh, set up several years ago, um, and uh, focused on. Uh, economics and um, I've been reading a lot about uh, re- renewables and sustainability um, but in the, in the last few months they've, doing, they've been doing some excellent work on the whole energy crisis and, and broaden that somewhat uh, which is why I invited Nicholas to come and talk about the energy crisis cost of living crisis that's sweeping Europe and is causing a lot of problems um, the economic war that we are fighting with Russia I mean the main focus of the reporting is on the kinetic war the military action in Ukraine, but Russia, of course, Putin has been hitting back by um, playing games with energy prices, um, with food prices. Um, that's driven up inflation to incredibly painful levels. It's driven up power bills, heating bills to incredibly painful levels. Um, and there's this battle going on, whereas on the one hand, the Ukrainians are trying to win on the ground in Ukraine and doing very well. And on the other hand, um, Putin is screwing with everybody's economies in the West and it's costing tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. So, um, Nicholas, maybe you could start with Bruel. Um, The name came onto my radar about four or five months ago. And as I say, I'm reading everything avidly that you produce now. Could you give me a short bio of of the think tank of what it is and where you are? You you yourself are in Washington, you know, but the, the... Think Tank itself is, is based in, in Belgium, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Bruegel is in Brussels. Uh, it was created uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, it actually started operations in 2005, but the preparatory work started in uh, October 2002. So we're going to celebrate the uh, 20th anniversary of that birth date next month. Uh, and it is really a kind of... Um, platform which brings together a lot of different perspectives. So uh, so the, the, the governance and funding of Bruegel are based on bringing together as donors, if you will, as uh, members, as we call them, uh, European member states and uh, private sector participants, so big companies, uh, if you will, uh, and but, uh, but also governments of the larger European member states, including the UK, by the way, which has opted to stay there even after Brexit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and uh, you know, uh, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, you name it. Uh, and uh, not, not all the smaller countries, because um, uh, some of them have opted not to participate, uh, but um, they're welcome to come <laughs> in the future. And your main um, but focus there are, is... There are about uh... 20 countries. And, and the um, focus is economics, is it not? I mean, you're doing... And the focus is on economics. Um, it is. Uh, it, it basically has the aim to provide uh, facts and ideas, but also debates and perspectives on economic mm. policy issues to help uh, have better economic policies in Europe. Uh, and uh, with a very, very transparent funding, very open approach to uh, bringing together people from academia, from the policy world, 
from civil society. So, um, so it's an open platform in, in okay. many ways. It has a permanent team, of course, in Brussels. I'm a bit of a special case because I'm also employed uh, at the same time by the Peterson Institute for International Economics, which is another right. think tank in Washington, D.C., and that's why I'm uh, joining from Washington today. Okay. Um, before we um, we go any further, I want to say to the audience that um, if you want to ask questions, then please use the chat function. You'll find it in the buttons on Zoom at the bottom, and we will attempt to um, answer questions as we go um, from things that you post there. Um, so, Nicholas, let, let's dive in. Um, I think the, the question of the day is uh, who blew up? Nord Stream 2. Do you have any idea? Because the speculation is rife. It could be the States, it could be the Ukrainians. Uh, people on Twitter were just suggesting that maybe it's the Polish because they've got a submarine for two years. But more seriously, um, what the question it raises is that with the tanks now 90% full in Europe, and particularly Germany as well, um, ahead of schedule, almost a month ahead of schedule, um, if Nord Stream 2 is taken out of the picture entirely, does that mean that Europe can get through winter? Does it need Nord Stream 1, I should say? Does it need any more gas? Because my understanding is that the German tanks are enough to, to uh, supply Germany with gas for two months. And in order to get to the end of the winter, it's going to have to import more gas. I mean, that's normal. And of course, there are alternative supplies. Algeria, Norway stepped up 8%. Um, LNG, of course, has been flooding in from the States particularly. And it seems that these alternatives will be sufficient to keep the tanks, you know, well, to keep the, the gas supplies going until April. But I, I really haven't got a clear fix on it. I mean, doesn't it depend on the winter as well, how severe it is? It does depend on the weather. So let's talk about the weather. Uh, and of course, we don't know I'm how British. harsh... Uh... Nothing exactly. I like more, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we cannot know how hard the winter will be, but that plays a big role. It also depends a lot on how consumers of gas and, uh, and energy resources will behave. Uh, so it is apparent that a number of industry consumers, big manufacturing plants, energy consuming industries, they will reduce their consumption uh, because of uh, the fact that it's so expensive now. Uh, but uh, it is less clear for households and, um, you know, retail consumers, because there have been a lot of protective measures to um, to shield them from the price increase. And also, frankly, it's uh, it's it's more difficult to predict the behavior. So I think one of the big parameters is how many of us will, you know, put a, lit, a little bit less heating, take uh, cold showers and the like uh, through the winter, uh, because that will have, of course, a massive impact on uh, consumption and therefore mm -hmm. on the gap, on the possible gap between supply and demand. And so a simple question, given a normal winter with average temperatures, um, with the 90% tanks full we have today, does that mean if there's no Nord Stream 2 one gas imports that we can get to April without having rationing, without having you know blackouts, rolling blackouts, brownouts. Yeah, that's a, that's a baseline uh, scenario in a way, but but you know the degree of confidence on that baseline is relatively low, and also of course uh, we need to get through not just this winter but next winter as well, mm. and uh, and we cannot expect that we will be able to replenish the gas. Uh, infra the gas storage infrastructure during the uh, spring and summer is the way we did this year. In a way, it's paradoxical that Mr. Putin chose to cut the gas supply in uh, September and not in March, but that has been 
his decision and that's probably good news for us. Yeah, I mean, briefly, I don't want to go deeply into that, but we, we've also already been looking ahead. And uh, although we seem to be fine this year, because there was significant um, supplies of Nord Stream gas up until June, um, that allowed us to fill the tanks very fast this year. This year actually was exceptionally fast in the early stages. However, going into the next year, after this heating season, is it possible then that we can fill the tanks next year? Because if you don't have any of that Nord Stream 1 supply, then there's not been enough time to put other uh, sources into place. I don't know, the Germans are building four very big LNG terminals, which I guess will be online. So in theory, it seems possible that Germany will have significant alternative supplies of gas. But I, again, do, do, do you know or yeah, have I, any view on it? I think you gave the response. I mean, we are betting a lot on LNG, LNG supplies uh, and uh, with the infrastructure that is being uh, put in place uh, in a rush, of course, mm. and at high cost, but worth it, uh, there, there is hope that uh, next winter will also be covered. Uh, again, that depends on so many parameters that uh, it's difficult to have any certainties. And uh, assuming, of course, that the Russians did it on Monday uh, on Nord Stream, uh, the, the most uh, likely uh, interpretation of that is that it was a signal to say they can hit the infrastructure for European energy um, outside of their own territory, uh, mm. which, of course, is an act of aggression, but something that uh, they have the capability to do, or at least had on Monday. Uh, mm. So, uh, so, so many different parameters come into the equation. Of course, uh, it's impossible to make a predictive statement. But, but yeah. with yeah. with all things, if if a number of things go right, which may be an optimistic assumption, then we should be okay. And that's a good point. I mean, you're saying it could go right. I mean, um, Bruel did a paper whereby you were saying if Europe cuts its consumption by fifteen percent then we should be fine. And then it was later the EU picked it up and von Leiden also, and she tried to do this mandatory 15% where Brussels decides. However, Spain, Portugal, Greece, they were like, look, we don't buy Russian gas. This is on you, Germany. This is your fault. We're not going to bail you out. And that whole thing fell apart. It ended up being massively watered down. I think it was 17 out of 28 members got some sort of carve out or exemption. But this thing about the reductions, um, it seems that everybody's actually retreated to their own national interests. And if you look at the Italians, for example, they've made no reductions at all. And I was reading somewhere, had they made 3% reduction in their gas consumption, then they would have had 80% full at a time when they only had 60% full. And that surprised me. It seemed that you actually have to make relatively small reductions in order to make a big difference to the amount of gas that you use. Yeah, I think there are many things to unpack here. And by the way, you mentioned Bruegel's publications. Uh, I have to emphasize that uh, I didn't author them. Uh, I, I'm a colleague of the heroes of the story, and I uh, <laughs> want to give a, a special shout out to my colleagues, uh, um, Simone Italia Pietra and Gerard Sachmann in particular, mm -hmm. uh, and the whole team that has been working on energy at Bruegel. Uh, but we have a lot of internal conversations, of course, so I'm happy to channel them. I just want to give credit where it's due. Sure. Um, so on this, uh, 
in a way, I, like, I alluded to it. It's it's very unprecedented, and and, and clearly the behavior during the summer uh, is not indicative of what we will see during the winter, if only because um, you know the, there's not a lot of air conditioning in Europe, and therefore we don't uh, we don't have the kind of uh, uh, consumption curves in the summer and peaks in the summer that exist in other countries, particularly in the US. So uh, so we will really discover the answer to your question during this winter. And, and, and in a way, it's a question of collective mindset, right? I mean, as I said, any of us can opt to um, take uh, cold showers and uh, and decrease the heating, but only to a certain extent. We're not uh, we're not uh, ready probably to freeze for the whole winter. So um, So how much of this kind of collective mobilization, engagement of the citizenship um, is going to happen. Um, it's a big question mark. And I think we'll we'll all learn. We'll probably observe very different patterns in different countries. Uh, and that's to be expected. Uh, and we'll learn a lot of lessons. But it, we, we this, don't know those lessons yet. Isn't this one of the weaknesses of the EU, though? Because um, it's just, you know, to be blunt, a trade club. It's not a federated political entity. And that's the weakness that Putin's playing on, trying to, you know, augment the fractures. I mean, Hungary, of course, has gone its own way, and the relationships between Brussels and Warsaw are not particularly good, unless you ask them about Russia, and then they're on board 100%. Um, but the, um, the, the response here in this, this economic war um, is that because unit, uh, there's no unity within Europe, that um, Russia has the opportunity here to, to play these energy games and stoke these resentments. And Well, uh, you know, I, I would dispute your semantics. The EU is much uh, more than a trade club. It does have a form of political identity. It's a different political identity from a cohesive centralized nation state like France or England. But even if you look at actually uh, jurisdictions we just have mentioned, the so United Kingdom, you know, we're seeing uh, different countries in one country, right, uh, with Scotland, Northern Ireland, uh, England, and also Wales. Um, Germany is a very decentralized country. There's a lot of horse trading between the lender and uh, with different levels of government. So uh, not saying that the EU is comparable to those two sovereign countries, the United mm. Kingdom and Germany, but just to say that uh, maybe the French and English, you and I, um, uh, more than anybody else, we have a tendency to project a vision of, you know, very centralized political entities with a strong capital, actually overweight capital and, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, a top down chain of command, which actually is not what people experience in many other countries that have a long track record of functioning quite well. So yeah. yes, the EU is um, is a quasi-federal construct, not quite federal. Uh, there is sovereignty at the level of the member states, and that's very important in uh, the way it's built, but it is a single framework of law. Uh, it has a Supreme Court, a, a Court of Justice of the European Union. Um, it, it has enforcement mechanisms at the EU level in a number of important policies, including, of course, Indeed. trade policy, co uh, co competition policy, but also a number of new sectors. I've worked a lot over the last 10 years, for example, on what this nickname banking union, the fact that uh, banks now are supervised by the European Central Bank in the Eurozone and a little bit further. Uh, that's that's a very important, it's it's kind of wonkish and uh, maybe doesn't uh, but, speak but to the common people. You, but it, but it's, a very, it's a very strong point of centralization. So, so you're right, there is all this back and forth, all this horse trading, it's often uh, immensely frustrating for both those who uh, do it and those who observe it. 
But, uh, but I think what we have observed, and this is an important point I want to make here, is that Putin has underestimated the cohesiveness of the yeah. EU. He has tried, as you mentioned, to divide and conquer uh, since before the invasion. And by and large, he has failed miserably. Even Hungary, yeah. and there are lots of things to be said about Mr. Orban and, uh, and his regime in Hungary, even Hungary has voted for very uh, forceful packages of sanctions time yeah. and again. So the, no, the negotiation, we... so horse trading is sometimes a bit, uh, you know, um, ugly to watch but the results are actually quite we, uh, um, much more than we just have to admit that that the eu has shown extraordinary unity particularly at the beginning of the war and that they brought out the most extreme sanctions and um everybody rallied around and signed up for that and i don't think putin was expecting either the severity of some of the sanctions that came out of left field like the uh, freezing of the central bank funds and the swift ban yeah, which was so that that was very good but the, the the practical question here is that given the disunity and the national interests that lie within the eu because of its sort of half-baked nature as a political entity how long will this war go on because i can definitely sense that there's a feeling at the moment and we'll get on to the policy responses for the um, energy crisis in a minute which highlights this but there's a feeling that we just need to get through this winter. It's going to be really tough because we're facing down Putin. But by spring next year, it's going to get a lot easier. We've already mentioned that people like us are starting to think ahead and saying, actually, refilling the tanks next winter or next um, summer is going to be difficult. But then there is a point where Putin has this energy card to play, but it's not going to last very long because we will in the West reorientate away from Russian oil. We will replace the Russian gas with LNG or of course, renewables are becoming increasingly important. At what point, what, what, how long will it take to get to the point where the power of Putin's energy weapon has diminished to the point where it's no longer useful? I mean, I, I could guess two years by 2024, we'd have enough renewables, we'd have enough alternative sources that we won't need Russian gas anymore. We would get rid of that dependency on that last 30% that we're importing at the moment. Well, again, I think we have to be uh, careful about scenarios, right? And hypothesis. If uh, Putin, God forbid, uh, starts attacking our energy infrastructure in not just uh, in Ukraine, but in Europe, uh, those calculations uh, are modified to say the Sorry, least. you mean he starts blowing them up? Well, that's a signal he sent in the, in the Baltic Sea. And of course, uh, he, he blew up his own infrastructure, assuming mm. that he's the one who decided it, uh, which doesn't strike me as a particularly unreasonable assumption. But clearly, uh, the intent was to send a signal. So, so I'm just uh, you know uh, extrapolating from what we know to what we don't know. But uh, many mm. people have made the same extrapolation here. My point is that... Um, I don't think it's fair to say that the lack of decision-making capacity of the EU is why the war is not over yet and Ukraine has not won yet. This is a military war between Ukraine and Russia. Yeah. Uh, the Ukrainian capacity to fight has been admirable and very surprising to many. Um, it was not expected by many people that the Ukrainians would be uh, able to prevent the capture of the big cities, Kiev, Kharkiv, Odessa, and more, and, and even able to push back as they have done in uh, the Kharkiv region uh, last month. So, so, so we've had a lot of good news, uh, good surprises on the military front, I think. 
Um, and remember, in terms of the economic front, that Putin had been preparing for this for at least the last eight years, since the previous yeah. round of fighting and sanctions. So the fact that there was some resiliency of the Russian economy against Western sanctions is actually not a surprise, if there is a surprise, it is that some of the sanctions had not been anticipated at all uh, by, by Putin and his team. Uh, so I, we don't know how long the war will last. Uh, there are many uh, possible developments here. I think we have to prepare for a long war. And the latest decision about mobilization, which is not so partial, uh, goes in that direction. So the working, so the baseline assumption has to be that the war will last several years, probably by the mid 2020s, if not before, we will not be dependent on the Russian energy weapon at all. We're mm -hmm. already much less dependent on it than we were at the beginning of the invasion in February. And, uh, and of course, there are many questions about the military front, but also about our own financial support to Ukraine. Maybe we'll talk about that, which uh, will determine uh, who wins this war and when. So um, looking at the other side of the coin, the economic war, <clears throat> I mean, our argument has been that the way Putin is fighting back is to make this extremely expensive. And I'm not just talking about the, you know, the 40 billion in US arms and the 12 billion they announced today in macro support. I'm talking about the half a trillion um, euros that the EU has already committed in terms of dealing with energy sanctions, which are the tax cuts, the price caps, the uh, energy subsidies, the one-off payments that's been going on. I mean, here in Germany, um, I think they're up to 100 billion. The Italians have already spent 50 and say that will go to 100 by the end of the year. Um, and that the, 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 the enormous cost of this. And, how, how much of that can the EU take? I mean, the EU's capacity to borrow is far larger than, than Russia's. So in theory, they can just keep borrowing, but they come into this already with weak balance sheets that were caused by very heavy spending that went on during the two years of Corona. So now they're faced with another enormous bill. I mean, at what point does it become unsustainable? You're, you're asking the question of, um to use a jargon of economists, fiscal capacity uh, in the European Union, right? right. And, and as you know, we don't have a fiscal union. We don't have a federal fiscal system with the ability to tax and spend and borrow at the EU level. We only have baby steps towards that. And the big one, of course, has been in 2020 in response to the pandemic when EU, EU member states unanimously uh, uh, agreed to launch a program called Next Generation EU, which for the first time ever, was uh, the European Union borrowing on the markets at scale in very large numbers into hundreds of billions over a number of years uh, to finance a joint response to the pandemic. But other than that, we have national fiscal systems, national spending frameworks, and that uh, is uh, the answer to your question. So far, these extraordinary measures of um, support to uh, consumers for uh, to, to mitigate the cost of the energy prices, but also other measures are borne by the national budgets, by and large. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of that is uh, carried under the program Next Generation EU, but generally speaking, it is a national effort. At this point, that's fine. This is how it should be. Um, if you apply a principle of subsidiarity, if the, if the member states can do it, let them do it. Maybe there will come a point, and I think we're still far from that, where 
pooling the effort at the EU level will be necessary to ensure its sustainability. Uh, at that time, we know that we can do it because we did it with Next Generation EU in 2020 in response right. to the pandemic. We can do it again. Why don't we do it already? For obvious political reasons, there is reluctance to share the risks and the spending in a number of member states. That's normal, but we, there is this capacity. And in terms of the EU level borrowing capacity, there is a lot of creditworthiness. So basically mm. there is, I shouldn't say there is no limit, but there is no practical limit to the extent that the EU, if it does decide politically to pool its efforts together to get through this difficult phase of the war uh, of aggression of Russia and Ukraine, um, we can do it. So, so there's a lot yeah. of hope here. I don't, I don't think we're uh, cornered. Yeah. So, I mean, to put it in simple terms, um, it's cost half a trillion so far. It seems that this phase going through to the end of the easy season, the bill is going to go up to a trillion. And then if the same energy crisis next year, you're going to add another trillion. But you're, you're saying at this point, you know, we can absorb that or the member states at a sovereign level can, can absorb that kind. And then if it starts getting too painful, as you say, it, during the pandemic, we had this first sort of proto European level borrowing and the EU as a whole is so enormous, uh, the size of the economy is so enormous, that there's a whole nother level of borrowing we could do, because we're assuming the war is going to go on for two or three years. Um, and hopefully at the end of that point, if Putin sort of runs out of steam, then, you know, the end scenario would be a collapse, or at least the Russian budget would start running into serious trouble, which also seems likely after a few years. And then uh, you know, uh, we come out the other same... side. There's a saying, a trillion here, a trillion there, and soon enough you are talking real money. Uh, so <laughs> it used to be with a billion, but uh, but but now you know there's inflation. Um, no, seriously, um, I think you frame it correctly. Uh, Harl James, uh, a, a great uh, financial historian, uh, said at an event recently that uh, each side, and he meant Russia, of course, on one side, and on the other, Ukraine, but all the nations that uh, that. Uh, support Ukraine, including the US, the EU, the UK, but many others, Japan, South Korea, uh, and, um, you know, it's it, it's it's more than a Western coalition. It's not a complete rest of the world coalition, but it's somewhere in between. Anyway, the way he put it is each side is gambling on the collapse of the other. And I think that's a very good way to summarize what we are in. Putin is gambling on much more than the defeat of Ukraine. He's gambling on the breakup of the uh, NATO coalition and frankly, on the breakup of the EU itself. Uh, that's what he wants to see happening. That's how he thinks in terms of victory. Correspondingly, uh, I think it is a fact that even so we, you know, the EU, the UK, US, Japan, others, we would like to see a ceasefire. We have to prepare for a situation where there is no ceasefire and when uh, where basically the fighting will have to continue until the point when uh, Russia can no longer sustain it. And it's very difficult to say when that point comes and we're seeing things happening in Russia uh, time and again that um, you know uh, uh, represent surprises one way or another. But uh, but but we have to make that assumption. Uh, of course, it has to be hoped for that at some point uh, the Russian leadership, be it Putin or somebody else, will stop this uh, 
tragic nonsense before it comes to a point of collapse. But we cannot rest on that assumption. We need to have a plan B. And I think that's exactly the mindset in which um, policymakers in Europe and uh, also in the US and Japan and elsewhere uh, are right now. Well, <clears throat> there's a, a famous analyst called Tim Ash in London um, who has speculated today that the setback, the counteroffensive in Ukraine has been so spectacular um, and that Putin's been forced into the corner with the mobilization, the chaotic mobilization that's going on at the moment. And that he was saying the attack on Nord Stream and a, you know, a physical attack on an energy, key energy asset, plus all the talk of nuclear bombs, is just trying to soften the West up for peace talks, a negotiated solution where Putin could walk away with Donbass, the land corridor down to Crimea and Crimea itself. But I, I don't know, I, I think we're, that would be to underestimate resolve Putin has about how long he's going to take this and to what extreme he will take this. Um, yes. But it brings me back to the the um, the energy crisis. Um, mm -hmm. we, we did a piece where we went to look at um, the energy intensive industries in Europe, uh, central but Western as well, and started to catalog the, all the plants that are closing down. And there's actually a lot of them. Um, metal plants that use electric arc furnaces, fertilizers who don't have gas as a feedstock anymore. Um, glass, famously, there's going to be a shortage of you know, car windscreens because glass is very intensive. And all of these things, these companies, these Western companies, they're just not economically viable anymore with energy prices at 10 times what they are. To what extent is that going on? So, so how worried should we be about heavy industry closing down? Is it permanent? I mean, are these companies going to recover? Doesn't that depend on energy prices going back to normal? And um, how much damage does that do to the, the Western economy? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very nuanced picture. Some of them are closing temporarily. Some of them will close permanently. In some cases, this is just an acceleration of a shift uh, in terms of the value chain that was happening anyway. So a lot of these high energy consumers are actually not particularly sophisticated industry, even those which are located in the territory of the European Union. And they would have migrated for a number of reasons uh, to other parts of the world or uh, get out of the got, gotten out of the competition anyway at some point in the near future, even without this energy crisis. So it's it's difficult in a way to build the contrafactual scenario. If we didn't have the energy crisis, um, would the industry structure stay exactly as it is? Of course not. Um, this energy crisis, of course, is damaging for a number of industries, uh, no denying that. But I think in terms of the high value added, uh, the most productivity uh, intensive uh, industries, uh, you generally don't see that, and I'm simplifying uh, outrageously here, in the most uh, energy intensive um, uh, segments of the, of the economy. So this is to say that yes, there will be uh, pains, there will be transformations, there will be restructuring, but it is not, uh, to me, uh, a consequence of that, an inference of that, that this uh, transformation will be crippling for the European economy. Just one more thing we have to adapt. <clears throat> so it's going it, to it, make it, some changes it, but and restructuring, but it's it's not fundamentally going to gut the economies. Uh, exactly. And, and, and frankly, I mean, I'm going to go into a cliche here, but as Europeans, our strengths in the world uh, economy are not about energy resources. They're about uh, education. They're about uh, skills. They're about mm. 
legacies of what we know how to do because we have some forms of collective organizations that have been well performing in a number of industry segments. Uh, and this competition is never over. It's, uh, of course, there has been, and that's good news for the world, a lot of uh, rising uh, competitiveness in other parts of the world, starting with China, but not only uh, in the last 20, 30 years. But I think in Europe, we're, you know, we're still living quite well, actually, even so, you know, I come from a country where people like to complain. But, uh, <laughs> but if you look at if you look at uh, welfare spending, if you look at education, healthcare, uh, infrastructure, uh, I think uh, in Europe, we have a pretty good deal by and large compared with yeah. other uh, places in the world, especially for those who are not at the top of the wealth um, ranking. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think we will uh, be able to keep that. So let me ask you uh, two questions. One general, um, the key to the energy crisis is of course the very high energy prices. And the, they, they went to insane levels uh, in the summer and they started to fall off again, but they've gone from insanely high to just very, very expensive. And even when the prices have come down, you know, we went from 10, 20 times normal down to, but now they're still like two, three times normal. And as we just said with the industry, I mean, that makes a lot of uh, heavy or energy intensive industry unviable. Um, and part of this is that if, you know, we, we've switched from importing cheap Russian gas to very, very expensive LNG. And the only reason we've got so much is that we just simply outbid Asia, which is very dependent on that. But to what extent are those energy, those higher energy prices permanent? And more specifically, there's talk here in Germany that the economic model has been fundamentally broken. It relied on cheap Russian gas to produce very high quality widgets, which it could export. And if suddenly it doesn't have that cheap Russian gas, which it won't do, then doesn't the economy, the German economy, doesn't it doesn't work properly anymore. We had the first trade deficit in 30 years, and I think it was in May in Germany. So first, yeah, high, energy, high energy prices, are they permanent? So um, depends on your time horizon, of course. We're engaged in a green transition in Europe, uh, and uh, we've uh, waited far too long to start that in a serious way. But uh, I'm uh, certainly hopeful that we will increasingly depend on renewables and not just on LNG. Uh, and, uh, and of course, with a lot of debates on you know, what is the right mix, what is the right pace, uh, what's the place of nuclear in all this. Uh, there's a big embarrassment in France, of course, with all the problems with the nuclear plants uh, on which the country uh, relies a lot. So, um, so how can we fix that? You know, lots of different questions here. But I think the, the long-term future is one in which um, even natural gas is not the mainstay. The mainstay is really uh, depending uh, more and more on renewables. And, uh, and I don't think that's utopian. That's something we just have to uh, work a lot on, invest a lot in. Uh, now, when you spoke about the German economic model, here again, I think that's a massive oversimplification. It is true that there are lots of energy intensive uh, industries in Germany, but saying that the German manufacturing um, industry uh, miracle was a uh, export miracle was just a function of cheap energy, I think is does not square with the fact. So, uh, so I, I'm, I, I personally view the German strengths as the strengths of corporate governance and adaptability of its corporate model. And I think uh, we will see that, that adaptability again at play in managing this transition. Of course, many people are worried. Uh, it is, a, it is a, a transition. It is a transformation. You mentioned the trade figures. I, in a way, you 
could say this is a mean reversal, right? It was impossible for Germany to keep having all these export trade imbalances uh, forever. Uh, this is not a predictive statement, just a comment on the latest figures that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but but I think when you when you're familiar with the German Mittelstand, all these uh, export champions uh, in manufacturing and uh, different segments. Um, they, they're very resourceful uh, and uh, they're not successful just because they are buying Russian gas. So, so they will adapt, most of them. Because the plan in Germany particularly um, has been already to move away from gas. I mean, Merkel was in, in Moscow in, in September, is it 2021 or 2020? Anyway, uh, and there she told Putin that, look, we're not going to import any Russian gas within 20 years. Uh, which is why Germany in particular was so reluctant to, to sign these long-term contracts that Putin was pushing. Uh, and I must say, ironically, uh, Europe has just signed long-term LNG contracts with the states, so it's locked itself into this gas that it didn't want to do. But the point being was that the German plan, the EU plan, was to replace that gas with renewables. But wasn't the plan for that to happen over the next 10 or 20 years? I mean, isn't the, one of the upshots of, of this whole conflict going to be to massively accelerate that. I mean, I know that Bruegel has been pushing the whole renewable things and arguing that actually with the 15% reduction, what that comes part and parcel with is there's a lot of renewable investment we can do accelerate in order to take the pressure off even faster. I mean, you know, so we can complete that green transition, not in 20 years, but maybe in five years. Well, I don't know about the exact you know deadline for completion, but I think your framing is exactly right. It 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 is an acceleration of the energy transition. Uh, it's something that we should have been able to do on our own, but now we're doing under external pressure, and it will be made more painful by the fact that it is under external pressure. But at the end of the day, this is a necessary transformation, so we need to do it. And. Well, let's move on, because, I mean, Bruegel just did a, a very interesting, or, but rather long and boring, to be honest, uh, paper where it dove into the details of what each country, major country in the European Union uh, is doing in order to tackle the energy crisis. And my takeaway from that is that most people's plan has been to throw money at it. Because, again, the political problem here is that you've got 10 times increases in uh, in your in energy in general. But, you know, my personal example, living in Berlin, um, you know, our energy bill is going to double. Um, but if it's not going to go up 10 times. Uh, and the governments are basically taking on the pain of that. They're capping. I mean, the favorite solution is to cap the energy prices, to cap the bills, to pass on some of that to the consumer. And then to raise the money to pay the difference by hitting energy companies with windfall taxes, because, you know, if you're in the gas business, you're paying 10 times as much. But if you're in the solar energy business, suddenly you're benefiting from these massively high power prices uh, and you're making uh, extraordinary profits. And so governments are coming and taking that away in order to subsidize that. But there's a whole variety of uh, mechanisms. Other people have cut VAT, other people have given one-off payments. And can, can you sum up, I mean, I, having read through all of it, it wasn't really clear to me, you know, all these different mechanisms, you know, how effective is it? Is the bottom line simply that governments are trying to stop the huge increases getting to their citizens, and that's a politically driven thing, and how they, they do that, how they fund that, is a multiple choice question for each individual government. Uh, you know, I think this is, I mean, governments, let's face it, are in firefighting mode, right? I mean, there's a crisis, there is an emergency, 
there is a risk of um, many people not being able to cope, and this is real. Um, so, um, so governments are trying their best to uh, address that and uh, take out of the landscape the, the most dire scenarios uh, that could lead to social unrest, but also, frankly, to a lot of suffering that uh, is better avoided. Now, of course, that should not translate into windfall uh, profits or subsidies to people who can cope uh, and companies that can cope and should share sh some of the burden. So it's difficult to fine tune. Some governments are probably doing it better than others. Uh, the way to do it, which was a bit your question, I think has to be uh, as decentralized as possible because conditions are very different uh, in different member states. So, um, so the fact that you have this long and boring paper with lots of different uh, responses in different member states, I think, is as much a feature as a bug. Uh, there is no reason that there would be a one-size-fits-all response. Uh, and as we discussed before, as long as this can be financed by individual member states on their normal fiscal uh, mechanisms, that's probably the best way to go for now because uh, we don't have a permanent uh, European fiscal mechanism uh, federal financing uh, in place. We have one which is temporary with next generation EU, but we don't have a permanent one. Again, it's very reassuring that this option exists and we may be able to activate one in future, but we, we don't have it now. So, so at this point, you have this scattered response. Uh, is the fact that it's scattered a problem? In some areas, yes. In many areas, no, uh, because this is local responses to local challenges, even so mm. everybody faces uh, kind of the same challenges. So responses have to be adjusted to the local conditions. So I mentioned that one of the favorite responses is to cap prices and to use windfall taxes. Um, and, but to what extent, it seems to me that the people are moving slowly towards what I think, having looked at it a bit now, seems like an obvious solution. Because, you know, again, if you take someone like Germany, uh, I think half of the energy is generated by renewables. And then you've got a few like fossil fuel uh, burners um, that provide the base loads. So when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, and you need to have something there for for baseload, but the uh, the swing provider, swing provider is the uh, is the gas, and that comes online uh, with peak demands, you know, in the evening when it's cold, and of course that one is the expensive one because they've got ten times more um, in in costs. But the problem is with the electricity market in particular. That when you um, when you suddenly the gas electricity costs ten times much, it lifts the tariff for everybody. So all the cheap producers suddenly get this ten times increase in price. And one of the solutions to this price cap is not just to cap the prices for the whole market; is to differentiate between the different types of power and saying, you know, you as a solar power producer, you cannot charge more than X, which is, you know, your cost of production plus some profit margin. Um, and that way you can stop, you, you can limit the, the increase in the cost of the, of the power to just the gas producers when they're doing that peak providing uh, thing and everyone else doesn't get the windfall profits in the first place, you don't need to tax them. But then that means we're moving towards a fundamentally different way of charging for power and calculating it and a much more complicated system, but one that would actually avoid this problem because then if you have to buy extra gas, you know, for peak seven o'clock in the evening on Saturday, then you've only got a few hours where it's very expensive. 
and the rest of the week it's it, the prices remain normal whereas at the moment you've got this permanent increase by whatever it is fourfold tenfold in prices that are just causing these insane costs but at the same time these insane profits are we getting anywhere near that so we don't have an alternative model at this point which is workable to the one on which the European market has been uh, built up in the recent times, which is this uh, pricing at marginal cost, uh, as you described it uh, succinctly. Uh, and the marginal cost principle uh, may sound nonsensical in some circumstances, but that actually works quite well. And these market uh, mechanisms have provided a framework for people to invest in the last few years. So if you change the rules of the games all the time, you, won't, you will have less investment. This is a fact, we know that. Uh, and um, if you want at least to, uh, to mobilize private investment, which is clearly what we need to do in Europe because uh, that's where uh, the big money is, uh, including to finance a green transition, as we mentioned. So imagine you're an investor, you're an, in, you're an investor, sorry, in a, a solar panel facility. Uh, part of your investment calculation is that sometimes you will have big spikes in price and that's when you will make the money that allows you to reimburse your investment. So if those spikes are capped systematically, that changes your investment calculation fundamentally. This is not to say um, that uh, the uh, uh, price cap idea is a bad idea necessarily because we know that the current circumstances are exceptional. It's just to say there is a big trade-off here. And, uh, and there is no silver bullet. There is no ideal solution to the um, challenges we're facing in this very exceptional uh, market environment that has been created by the Russian invasion. Because I've seen argued that, that one of the reasons why this, this system of tiered caps, you know, per, that, that target or are designed to suit particular types of generation, which yeah, all have different costs, that um, that is because people are afraid to dissuade investment into particularly renewables going forward and then that would slow this whole transition process down and i think ukraine is actually a good example because poroshenko um introduced these very generous green tariffs and ukraine's attracted virtually no fdi in the last well, whatever it is since since my 2014 except into the renewable sector where it's poured in and they actually have a very sophisticated, and I think they're up to 15% of production already is in renewables. And they're still investing because these tariffs are actually remain generous. So there's this kind of a, I don't know, quid pro quo or even an irony there that um, keeping the investment coming in, that means offering the profits is very, very important. I mean, I, I call me call me a capital, pro-capitalist dinosaur, but I think, I think if you don't offer... Uh prospects for profit making you won't get private investment there's a flip side to this because uh, one of the other responses um to this crisis is that government have been subsidizing the bills so you know here I, as i was saying you know we're going to pay whatever it is 200 400 euros more uh for our, our electricity which is painful but you know we turn off some lights we, we budget a bit and we can cope um but one of the upshots of that is that the subsidies do not in carry the pain to the consumer so the incentive of the consumer to make the reductions is very low and you actually subsidize the consumption particularly of gas and, and Italy is a great example because there's been exactly. no reductions there at all 
So in a way, this policy of subsidizing and protecting the consumer from this pain is counterproductive because it's ended up with a lot more consumption than there should be. So, I mean, I don't know, how, is there a happy middle ground between that? Uh, exactly. And, and, and again, again, it's a trade-off. What you're describing is uh, uh, irony of what, as we discussed before, has been an emergency response, firefighting, avoiding very distressful situations for a large number of individuals. But it is clear that it is not a good policy in for if it were to be sustained. It's a temporary fix. It's not sustainable. It shouldn't be sustained. Uh, and uh, it uh, it has to be replaced with something else. Uh, this is very clear. We don't want to subsidize uh, fossil fuel consumption uh, on a sustained basis in Europe. This cannot be Europe's strategy. Mm. Um, I've got a couple of questions. Um, uh, David Eddick's got one here. Um, he was saying that the, the modest long-term LNG contracts with the US come with the option to ship elsewhere in the world. And there is this competition now between Europe and Asia. And you take countries like Japan, which are almost entirely dependent on LNG. And I read that there actually isn't enough LNG production in the world to be able to replace the Russian supply in Europe and service Asia. And this year was made easier because China's demand was fairly slow. Um, and Qatar, you know, they're, they're driving a hard bargain too. And they have this huge project that's due to come online in 2025. I forget the name of it, but that would massively increase. However, they haven't gone ahead with the project yet because they're demanding long-term 30-year contracts to finance it. And so on the one hand, you know, with the LNG in particular, which has gone, and the interesting thing with LNG was that it was designed, or in Europe anyway, the role it played, apart from Portugal, which is heavily dependent on it, was as a sort of swing provider of energy. So if the winter was very cold, you could ship in a bit more LNG, but it's emerging now as the main source or one of the major sources of gas. But you've caught in this bind between, you know, tying yourself up to long-term contracts with the states, Qatar's asking for long-term contracts to increase the capacity so that they would be able to cover this extra demand. And <clears throat> doesn't it mean that at the end of the day, the EU is going to be beholden to all of these people and it's going to get forced to sign in these long-term contracts that it doesn't want? Because effectively, it's just cut its own leg off in terms of refusing to buy Russian gas. At this point, it's Putin cutting off the gas and blowing up the pipelines, <laughs> if that assumption is correct. So, you know, uh, I think we, we discovered a bit late that we had excessive dependency on Russia. Cutting that dependency is something that's happening anyway on Putin's initiative, but also something that should happen uh, because uh, that dependency is unhealthy. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think here you... To echo what we were saying before, you have to distinguish between the medium-term horizon, where uh, short and medium-term, we're doing what we can to uh, basically fill the gaps in the least damaging way possible. But in a, uh, it, it, it is not something that can be sustained over the long term. And then the long-term policy is that has to uh, rely much more on renewables. So, of course, gas producers like Qatar want long-term contracts, and so there is some bargaining which is going on as we speak. Uh, and it's possible to find compromises. But at the end of the day, uh, we, uh, we, we don't want our long-term future to depend on natural gas. We need our short-term and medium-term future to depend on it, and we have to find it where it is. 
Uh, as you... for the fact that, that there is not enough to feed the world, well, to a certain extent, there is elasticity, right? To speak the jargon of economists, that if, if the price is higher, the demand will be lower and conversely. So I think the adjustment uh, between capacity and demand that you were referring to in terms of Asia, Europe, uh, China, and the like, uh, this will happen through prices. And, and that means that this resource will stay expensive for uh, some time, most probably. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and that's also something we'll have to live with. So we said, <clears throat> I mean, could you characterize it this way? I mean, we've said the kinetic war in Ukraine now, we, we think probably go on for a year, two, maybe possibly three, um, unless one side or the other. Yeah, I, I didn't exactly say that. I said we have to prepare well, for a long war. Right, right, uh, right. I but think it has know. to be our baseline scenario for policy. In terms of predicting how it will go, I don't think any of us knows. No, but I think the, the policymakers should not put themselves in a squeeze where they say, well, if the war is over next year, we're okay. If it's not, we have a problem. Yeah, no, I agree. But what I was driving at was like the kinetic war, you know, time horizon, sort of reasonable assumption is like year, year two, maybe. However, this thing with the energy transition is much more serious and long term, because on the one hand, you've got Qatar trying to do 30 year contracts and the states uh, with LNG supplies so they can develop those businesses. And on the other hand, you've got the EU who's desperately trying to go to renewables. But that's also a five to 10 year process. And then once we get to this green transition, when it's completed, then the whole natural gas business sort of should just fade away, should die. I mean, to some extent, because it's not necessary anymore that we've got the energy. So we've got kinetic for two year time period and we've got green transition for five to 10 year period. And we've got to try and get from here to there somehow. Isn't, isn't that exactly why the producers want very long term contracts? Yes, I mean, that's why Putin was pushing so hard, because, I mean, Gazprom had already said it was going to switch to Asia, but it had a 10-year program to do that. So, I mean, they've been forced to accelerate that in the same way that Europe has been forced to accelerate its green. So there were big, big changes going on already, but we're now in this very confused 10-year period where, on the one hand, Gazprom is building a power of Siberia 2, and the, the SOP pipeline is going to be doubled um, so that they can switch to Asia. And on our side, we're, we're building those renewables and other alternative sources as fast as we can. But in the meantime, we're going to have to import expensive oil from uh, Saudi Arabia, which has to come twice as far. We're going to buy very expensive LNG, which you know costs three or four times more than pipe gas. And we're going to have to do that until we have this transition to green finished. But you know that's still a five to 10 year uh, program. I mean, I've seen some economists like uh, our friends and colleagues at IIF saying that there's now we're moving into a new phase global economy we've had 10 years of very low inflation very cheap funding and now we're looking at slow growth high inflation um, while all of this goes on uh, because there's been a, a phase chase in, in the way that the economy works do you agree with that um I'm less sure I think at this point, we have high inflation, high energy prices, uh, where it will be in five years. You know, if we knew we would be rich, as the saying goes. Um, and, uh, and I think at this point, we have to get there. Uh, and, um, and going back to the war, this war has to be won by the right side, which is not Russia. 
Uh, I don't know how long it will take. I don't have a baseline assumption here. As I said, it can be short, it can be long, but we should be prepared for a long war, including ones that last for more than two or three years. Uh, so, um, so, so I'm I'm thinking more in terms of risk and scenarios and in mm. terms of forecast because I think the world right now is very difficult to forecast, especially over a long horizon. Uh, I have another. Um... Specific question, uh, I'll take a last one from Roberto Ritz, who's asking about Italy, which is famously indebted. And uh, I think the UK is now about to join that club. Um, and if it gets into trouble with all this borrowing and its profligate use of gas and not being uh, frugal with that, um, will the EU Commission come and, and uh, bail it out? I mean, is that a possibility that if anyone starts getting into debt trouble, that there will be a, a European-wide rescue mission? Well, you know, we've been through the Eurozone crisis, we've been through the pandemic shock and next generation EU. We've learned a lot. So I think some strident uh, discourses about Eurozone breakup and, uh, and uh, financial instability uh, having certain types of consequences in Europe um, has become a bit uh, stale because uh, because of all those lessons learned. So so Italy has a new uh, governing majority. Uh, to be honest, if I had been an Italian uh, voter, which I'm not, I would probably not have voted for Fratelli d'Italia. But uh, but but this is what the Italian people have chosen. Uh, the signals so far are that this uh, new coalition will actually be quite. Um, I wouldn't say conservative, but uh, certainly restrained in its economic and financial management. These are early signals. I don't mm. want again to you know make too much of a forecast, but the anticipation at this point, including in the marketplace, uh, is that um, this is not a regime change in terms of economic and financial matters. Uh, and uh, obviously, we should know in the next few days uh, who's the finance ministers. This will be a big signal to the market. But Mrs. Meloni has been very careful to signal that she didn't want to rock the boat uh, in that department, even so she may be very disruptive or wants to change a number of things on other fronts. Also, frankly, she will face, like all European uh, leaders, a difficult environment in the next few months. Yep. So there yep. will be hardship. Uh, because there will be for everybody, not just for Italy. And I don't think, frankly, politically, she will want to be blamed for that. So this is yeah. not a moment to make reckless economic and financial decisions, uh, because uh, citizens may want to hold you accountable if you do. Uh, and this is, by the way, exactly what we see in the UK right now. Not to make reckless and irresponsible decisions. I think we should take this message uh, maybe to uh, Downing Street uh, from the <laughs> events of the last few days. Nicholas, uh, we've, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for taking the uh, the time to talk to me. It was fascinating. Uh, I think we batten down the hatches and prepare for a long, hard struggle, but it looks like we're, we're going to be okay. We'll get through this one way or the other. Well, uh, let's hope so, at least. Uh, thank you very much for having me. And again, if you're interested in Bruegel research, I encourage you very much to follow my colleagues' work because it's much more interesting uh, on this issue. <laughs> Indeed. And we write about it regularly. And to everyone out there listening, thank you for taking the time and joining us. Uh, I'd like to give ourselves a plug at the end. Um, we're following all these stories on a daily basis at bne.eu. And um, on the website, the right-hand side, you can sign up to Editor's Picks, which is our free email digest, where also you have the pleasure, I hope, of reading my daily blog about things that are going on. Um, you can see on the slide on the screen, um, there's also the Pro News Service, which is our uh, 
premium service for professionals where we go into a lot more detail, macro, corporate, finance, about what's going on. You can find this interview on our YouTube channel, b and and Telenews YouTube channel, um, with all the previous ones, and you can watch this later at your leisure or share it with your friends. So once again to everyone and to Nicholas, thank you very much for taking the time. I'll see you next time. All the best.